In this episode of Paid by the Word, Mike chats with radio personality Mike Bennett, the co-host of Mike and Casey in the Morning, a popular daily radio show in the Mid-Hudson Valley region of New York State. Here's a snippet from their conversation, which took place in November of 2020. I really didn't go to class. In fact, the only class I went to, I wasn't even enrolled in. It was my cousin's psychology class. He said, Mike, you should come to this class. This this professor is really good. You'll find it fascinating. So I said, okay. So I went to class with him. And every time they'd call, this is how old it was, they'd call the roll of the names. And he'd look at me at the end of going through, you know, 25 names and say, did I call your name? I don't remember calling your name. And I said, no, no. I said, I just transferred in. I said, the paperwork hasn't caught up with me yet. And he'd go, oh, okay. And this went on for an entire semester every time the class met. And I, you know, I took the final test. I, I contributed during class. I loved it. Of course, I didn't get any credit for it because I wasn't actually enrolled in that class. But the teacher, I think, caught on about midway through the semester. But he humored me. And since I wasn't disruptive, I just, I was really into it. And he was a good professor. Well, hello there, and welcome to Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with professional writers and editors. If you are curious about what goes on in the minds of people who write and edit for a living, this podcast is for you. Thank you, Zoe. In this episode, I'll be chatting with radio personality Mike Bennett, the popular co-host of Mike and Casey in the Morning on WHUD, the radio station serving New York State's Mid-Hudson Valley a region with seven counties and more than 1.1 million residents. Many of those residents listen to WHUD, and Mike's baritone voice has become a familiar part of their daily routines. If a snowstorm forces your local schools to close early, or it's National Nurses Day, chances are you'll hear about it first from Mike. Mike is also the author of Don't Pay the Ransom, I've Escaped, Memories of a Life on the Radio. I love Mike's book, which captures his gentle humor, his affection for the Mid-Hudson Valley, and his sheer enjoyment of being on the radio. Here are portions of our conversation. How did you break into the radio business? What was your your big break? Well, the funny thing is, uh, after high school and after Orange County Community College, briefly, I was working in my stepfather's uh, law office in Highland Mills, and he said, well, if you're going to be here answering the phones, and by the way, the phone never rang, but I was there just in case. Uh, he said, you should get a real estate license because as a lawyer, he was also a broker and he did sell parcels of land and homes. And he said, why don't you study and get the real estate license? And I, I know this sounds far-fetched, but I actually took the test and passed it. This is back in the 70s. And so when the time came to send out resumes to radio stations, I put on there that I had a real estate license. And oddly, that was the thing that got me hired because there was a little station in Hyde Park, New York, the home of the Roosevelt Estate. And the owner was actually looking for salespeople to sell radio commercials. And he saw that I had a real estate license. Now, mind you, I not only never sold a home, I never even showed a home. Why? No, I I correct myself. I showed one home. I drove up with the couple. And I, they said, are you getting out of the car? I said, no. I said, you go look at the house. If you like it, you buy it. If you don't like it, you won't buy it. I'm not going to be able to talk you into buying the biggest purchase of your life. And so that was you know, my sales acumen right there, kind of wrapped up in one. And so it was so funny that he saw that and said, well, I'll hire this guy. He's got a little bit of radio training. And 
he's a salesman. So I got hired as a salesman and then they gave me a part-time weekend shift, like one day a week doing the news. And that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to be on the air. Luckily for me, several people left the news department in short order and I just kept moving up. I went from part-time on the weekends to afternoons to mornings. And then the news director left for, I think, rehab. And uh, I became the news director within five months. So I went from no experience to running a news department in uh, short order. That's like such a great story. And then how did you, uh, how did you move from that, this station in Hyde Park to uh, WHUD? Well, what happened was, you know, in Hyde Park, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of news, but we covered whatever there was. You know, a cat got run over on Smith Street, you know, that kind of thing. And um, then the station in Hyde Park actually went to all news because there was nothing going on. So they said, let's really emphasize that (laughs) all news. And what happened was there was an NBC radio format at the time that you could get, and it filled like 52 minutes an hour. And then there were slots where you had to fill the other eight minutes with your news and headlines and commercials, whatever. And so they bought into that. And I said, we're going all news in Hyde Park, New York. And they said, yeah, it's going to be great. Well, as you can imagine, it didn't last very long. We, I think we did a year or so. And, uh, you know, we did our best. They, they gave me a lot of power. I hired, the, of course, all the disc jockeys got laid off, but I hired a complete news staff to augment what I already had and ended up, I think, with nine full-time reporters, which in this day and age, 2020, is like off the charts. Nobody has nine reporters. The New York Times doesn't have nine reporters. Anyway, so I had a morning-afternoon uh, drive uh, guys that went on in each hour, they would switch off. And then I had a guy who went out at night and a guy that did sports and whatever. I had nine people and we covered everything that moved. Uh, you can imagine in Hyde Park, you know, there's a tree down. We're sending a crew now and we'll have an update in just a while, you know, so it didn't take, but I mean, it didn't take a genius to figure out it was not going to work, but you know, I wasn't working for geniuses. So uh, that kind of spiraled out of control and then the station got sold and then the format changed and through it all i was still doing the news in the morning but with different people including uh, john gambling the third of the very famous gambling radio family and um, the company that bought the station finally went into bankruptcy proceedings and wasn't paying us on time in fact i had to go to the bank with the owner while the rest of the staff was ready to sabotage all the music and everything back at the station if they didn't get paid by five o'clock. And of course, the owner was the, and he was borrowing the money from the bank to meet payroll. And he was like Art Carney, you know, trying to sign the checks with his hand flipping around. And I'm like, sign the check so I can get them back and keep them from burning the building down. And uh, anyway, so I started looking for other work. And lucky for me, Our weatherman, who still is my weatherman on Saturday morning at WHUD, Jim Witt, he was the weatherman already at our station and HUD. And he said, well, I'll put in a good word for you. And he did. And I went for an interview on a Friday and I started on Monday. So that was it. And then, you know, you go from a little station in Hyde Park that's in a a former farmhouse to a 50,000 watt Metro New York station with thousands and thousands of listeners. And that's a pretty good jump and a, a good way to go. And I've been there ever since, since 1981. And give us a little background on the Mike and Casey show for people. who Sure. Well, we've only had three morning shows since the station started in 1972. And the first one was Joe O'Brien, a veteran of New York City WMCA radio days. 
I'm sure a lot of people know that name. And he was the morning man, probably the best, most upbeat person I've ever met. I mean, he was really good at what he did. He would drive all the way down to Westchester from Red Hook, New York. It was over an hour drive and in the snow and the sleet and the winter, you know, and he would show up and he would, no matter how miserable he might be personally, he would never allow that to creep into his on-air presentation. And he was, he was amazing. He was real. I learned so much from watching him. And so I was his newsman for a while. And then he retired and they brought in Ed Bear, who was another New York City, you know, famous DJ from the uh, good guys. And I was his newsman for a while. And then we, we did a trip down to uh, Disney World. And because I was out of the office and with him all the time, I kind of became sort of a co-host rather than just his news guy. And that started the, uh, uh, the Ed Bear affair turned into Ed and Mike in the morning. And then Ed retired in 2000. And I had worked with a young lady named Casey in the newsroom as an intern first, and then later as a fellow broadcaster back in the day. And we always hit it off well. So the management team said, well, we want you to do the morning show now, and we want you to pair up with Casey. They'd never had a two-person, well, they had with Ed and Mike, but never really a true two-person show. So I said, oh, great. So that was in April of 2000. So we just celebrated our 20th anniversary on the air. The other two morning shows each went 14 years so we beat them years ago, and now we're just blazing a new trail. I don't know how long we'll go, but so far, so good. Please describe your typical workday and uh, talk about which, uh, which habits have you found especially helpful. Well, I'll tell you, the, the main thing is you got to have the ability to get up early <laughs> and not do it too grudgingly. Now, of course, during the pandemic, things have changed a little bit, but on a regular basis, the first 20 years... Uh, get up at, you know, four o'clock in the morning. And uh, luckily it's radio, so I don't have to worry about my makeup and, and, and wardrobe. But I, you know, barely put on a pair of shorts and, and drive over to the station, which uh, is now three miles from my house. They moved the station back in 1998 and from Westchester up to Dutchess County, New York. And so it made it much easier for me. Before that, my commute was about 20, 25 minutes. Now it's like four minutes. So, uh, and in fact, if I'm ever running late, I can usually get there in about two and a half if the cops aren't around. <laughs> and so, you know, that's, that's the rub. The, the real issue, the real uh, hurdle to get over is just getting up so early. So I've, I've for 20 years have taken a nap right about this time, as a matter of fact. So if you hear snoring on the other end of this Zoom call, I know exactly what's going on. And so, uh, you know, you live with a nap and then you get up and have dinner and watch some TV and then go back to bed and get up, you know. So I get eight hours sleep, just not in a row, you know. I may get seven, uh, whatever, but not in a row, never in a row. So, and that's it. You prepare uh, the day and you get up and get going and try to be upbeat at least for those 10 or 15 seconds that you're on the air, because that's how long the intro is on the song and that kind of stuff. And I also do the sports on the show. So I, I have to be aware of what's going on with the New York sports, which has been very busy lately. And that's a good thing. And, you know, we have a weatherman, a traffic reporter, and a news reporter. So I'm not in news anymore. When we started the Mike and Casey show in uh, 2000, I got out of the news business. And now I'm just the biggest critic of the news media that you ever heard because I know enough about the process to, uh, to call a, you know, call people out if they're not doing their jobs properly. But 
get up. That's a, a whole other show. I've known you for so long, and your powers of improvisation are, are legendary. Uh, improv is essential, but there's method in your madness. Uh, what, what's your basic structure? Do you and Casey still use a format sheet? Yeah, we use a format sheet. It's really old-fashioned, and if anybody saw it, they probably looked a giggle that we actually used it. It's just a, a sheet of paper with three circles representing the 6 o'clock hour, 7 o'clock hour, 8 o'clock hour, which are key hours. We're actually on at 5, but not much happens till 6. And then after, nine, after 8 o'clock comes into 9 o'clock, 9 to 10 is mostly music. So we focus on the three big hours, 6, 7, and 8. And we have certain set pieces that we do, uh, for instance, birthdays and anniversaries. We do every weekday morning at 745. Uh, but the rest of the morning uh, is usually pretty open. So we plan ahead and we write in at the junctures of 15 and 45 is where we do our bits, if you will. And we try to sketch that out ahead of time. And it just gives us a feeling of structure when there really isn't any structure, depending on the day. But it, it helps to go into the day with a kind of a game plan as to where we're going. And so we do celebrity interviews. We just had Patty Smythe on the other day from Scandal. She's out with a brand new album, which, by the way, is really good. Really good. Her first new music in 28 years. And uh, she's become somebody that I enjoy talking to. Uh, and here's a great story about Patty Smythe. Not that you need a great story about Patty Smythe, but if you do, here's a great one. About uh, nine years ago, no, excuse me, 11 years ago in 2009, I had an interview set with her over the phone, which is the way we do 99% of the interviews. Not too many people travel to our studios to do interviews. And so, whatever, it never happened. And she felt terrible. We finally got connected. She said, I feel so bad. She says, I'm going to make it up to you. I said, well, you know, I'll just do the interview. That would make it up. She says, no. She says, I'm going to bring my guitarist and I'm going to drive to your radio station in the morning and perform for you in the studio to make up for blowing you off on this interview. Now, mind you, no one's ever said that before or since. I've never even heard of anybody doing this, but she did. She lives down in the city and she brought her guitarist and they got it to the station like eight o'clock in the morning. And she sat in the studio with us for an hour and she sang and she did, you know, goodbye to you and warrior and all that good stuff. And she kept her word. And I've always been impressed by that. And I told her that the other day, we've spoken a few times since, including just last week, but uh, that shows you the, the depth of her commitment to her word. So, you know, it's kind of a cool story and she is fantastic. If you ever have the chance, go see her in concert. She's fantastic. Very honest, very open. You know, it, when you talk to her, you feel like you're just talking to an, an old friend. She's really that good. And then, you know, she'll talk about John McEnroe, her husband, and that gets interesting. Uh, but she doesn't make a big issue of that, but she will, there's nothing off limits. You know, she'll talk about anything. She's really great. So, Mike, a, a big part of your of your role at the station is interviewing celebrities. Is that fun? Oh, it's absolutely fun. Are you kidding? I mean, most of them are very, very accommodating. And really, when you talk to these people, you realize they're just people. They're not anything special. They just have a particular talent. Uh, but let me give you some examples of some of the more recent uh, people I've had the pleasure of either interviewing or meeting or both. And one was uh, Louis Capaldi, who's had two of the biggest songs in the world in the last 12 months. Uh, he had his first big hit was called Someone You Loved, and now it's Before You Go, and they both played extensively on our station and elsewhere. 
And what happened was, you know, I have a good connection. My son, Michael, is in radio in Philadelphia, and we were visiting last fall before the pandemic. And he said, hey, you know, Mike, or dad, well, he calls <laughs> me dad, says, uh, uh, we're going to have Louis Capaldi in the station tomorrow. Uh, do you want to come and meet him? So we did. And it was fantastic. I think it was the last thing that anybody did before the pandemic. And uh, Capaldi is this young guy. He's only like 23, 24. And he's from Scotland. And he's got this strange sense of humor. He's very funny, very funny. He doesn't take anything seriously. And yet he writes these two big hits that are basically tearjerkers. And you say, how does that compute? And then my son interviewed him and I listened in and he... uh, he basically said, when I write the songs, I'm sad and I can write them and then I'm over. I'm over it. He says, now I watch the people crying in the audience, he said, and I know what they they're feeling because I felt that when I wrote it, but I don't feel it anymore. So he was a, a very interesting guy. And if if there was one person that I'm glad I met before the lockdown, when we don't do anything, was Louis Capaldi, because he has really turned out to be uh, in fact, he just performed this week on the American Music Awards. Uh, so he's really become something. And he's just a nice young kid who's very silly. I mean, he very silly. Everything he says is silly, except for the stuff he writes in the hit songs, Someone You Loved and Before You Go. Another guy I had a chance to talk to over the phone who I really admire is Harry Connick Jr. Because he went with his daughter, who's a uh, documentary filmmaker, and they started out up in the Northeast and they traveled through the nation down to his home state of Louisiana. And they filmed along the way uh, essential workers and got to meet some of them and interview them and turned it into a TV special that was on CBS a couple of months ago, turned it into some music. You know, he just had all of this to work with. And he really was inspired by these people he met and the stories they told him, you know, people that uh, clean the hospitals and people that provide the food, you know, uh, he just, I thought the special was great. And I love talking to Harry Connick Jr. He's a versatile guy. And I think he really uh, felt deep appreciation for the frontline workers and those essential workers that became so prominent during the pandemic. Another person that I spoke to that I had no idea what that was going to be like was Talia Shire. I mean, I just go by the fact that she played two of the most iconic female movie roles of all time. You know, from Adrian in uh, the Rocky movie and then also the uh, the wife in The Godfather, you know, the sister who became comes a wife and then the, her brother offs her husband. <laughs> you know, anyway, she she was so fascinating. She has so many stories to tell about those two big movies. And I love talking to her. And then I didn't even bring it up. But her son, of course, is Jason Schwartzman, the actor who was just completing season four of Fargo where he's playing a, uh, a gangster, not unlike what his mom played, uh, the family of the, the mom in the movie The Godfather. So that was an interesting one. And finally, I'll say that I was really surprised at how funny Tim Robbins was. I mean, you picture him in these serious movies. You know, Shawshank Redemption is the one that comes to mind for everybody, but he's also won an Academy Award for Mystic River. And he's just a great actor, director, writer, And he came on with his son, who's a director, writer, and he was just the two of them were so funny together. It was great to see. And of course, I brought up the fact that the son was the product of Tim Robbins and his relationship with Susan Sarandon, 
And I said, well, you come from, you know, he must be great at what he does because he comes from these strong genes. And he said, well, I, I didn't want to say anything, but I'll announce it now live on the radio. He's adopted. He doesn't have any of our blood. <laughs> and uh, of course, the son played along and said, Dad, what are you talking about? I'd never heard this before. So we got a kick out of him. And uh, so <laughs> Robin is right there at the top of my list of people that I enjoyed talking to. He's really funny. Oh, that's great. What a great story. But quickly, before you go, before I let you go, just <laughs> tell me about uh, Kevin Bacon. What's it like uh, interviewing him? I know you've interviewed him a couple of times. Yeah, a couple of times, as a matter of fact. Uh, Kevin Bacon is, is a lot of fun. But when you get Kevin Bacon... You generally get Michael Bacon because they always want to promote the Bacon Brothers, their band. They do mostly cover stuff, but they also do a lot of original stuff, mostly written by his brother, Michael. And so you get each of them and you have to you know, make sure you direct every other question to Michael Bacon because, you know, Kevin's got a much more, uh, you know, natural feel for this kind of thing because he's been in movies and TV his whole life. And Michael's mostly just a behind-the-scenes musician. But they're really nice guys. I've met them, like you said, at a number of occasions. And as a matter of fact, they had two sold-out shows years ago in White Plains. And I got hired as the MC. And in between the shows, me and the band and the Bacon Brothers all walked over to a restaurant and had dinner. So I can say that I've had six degrees of separation at dinner with Kevin Bacon. And <laughs> oh, that's great. He's, he's a great guy. He really is. He's a nice guy. And he's uh, very, very down to earth. You know, there's no airs about him at all. And I see that his wife, uh, Kira Sedgwick, is about to star in a new sitcom coming up on Fox. So the family stays very busy. And uh, Kevin Bacon is a uh, He's really into his music. You know, in the beginning, the Bacon Brothers, people always wanted him to do Footloose because he starred in the movie. And they used to. I don't think they do anymore. They've kind of gotten away from that. But he would do Footloose just to please his fans. So he's really into music. He's very much into acting, obviously. And uh, they're a strong duo. The Bacon Brothers, Michael and Kevin. Wow, that's great. But And of course, while we're on the, the topic of Kevin, Kevin Costner also has a band, right? Yeah. Yeah. Modern West, it's called. And I met him a couple of years ago at Ridgefield Playhouse. I had interviewed him over the phone before that. And I told him that he has done so many great movies that I love. Of course, number one on my list is Field of Dreams. And I explained to him that I went to see that movie. I only knew that it was about baseball somehow. I didn't really know the, the plot. And then the movie starts and I realized that this whole thing is about his father dying young and growing up without his father and wanting to have a catch and all that. And my father died young. So I was just a pool of tears in the movie theater. And when it gets to the end, he says, Hey dad, you want to have a catch after the father's re resurrected, if you will. Uh, it was unbelievable to me. Uh, I, so it's always been my favorite movie and he got a real kick out of that. And then I got the chance to meet him backstage after the band performed at Ridgefield and gave him a copy of my book, don't pay the ransom i've escaped and he loved the title and he uh i told him i said well the, the movie rights are still available kevin if you want to jump on that and so if you see a movie called don't pay the ransom i've escaped uh, that's going to be real good news for me okay that will that is a movie that i will definitely see uh <clears throat> pardon me now i'm there's, there's, there should be a rule in this. Don't eat a handful of peanuts right before going into a, uh, <laughs> doing a podcast. But uh, I was like on, 
there was an episode of The Office I was watching the other night, and the first couple of seasons of that was as funny as anything I've ever seen. And Michael Scott is eating a tiramisu with the, the chocolate um, powder on top, and he keeps oh, putting it in his mouth and then choking, and then telling the guy he's talking to on the phone, I'm choking. And then he immediately picks it up and takes another bite. You know, it was so delicious. <laughs> so funny. That's true. The, the best line from that show, I think one of the funniest lines that I've ever heard when he's talking about Toby, the human resources guy who he can't stand. I mean, he detests him. That's the whole <laughs> funny part of the movie, uh, the show. And he says, if I was in a room with Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein and Toby, and I only had two bullets, I'd shoot Toby twice. <laughs> Listen, Mike, in uh, 2013, you wrote a hilarious book, Don't Pay the Ransom, I've Already Escaped, Memories of a Life on the Radio. Right. Mike, would you uh, favor us with a couple of passages from the book, please? Oh, okay. Well, let me see if I can find something cogent here. Well, this on page 66, uh, it says, as I mentioned earlier, when I'm speaking into a microphone, I tend to imagine that I'm speaking to one person. That's one of the helpful hints, by the way, that you learn from people that have preceded you in radio. Uh, on some days, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people are listening. That's a little exaggeration. Uh, and here's the odd thing. Even though I know better, when I listen to the radio, I think that the announcer is speaking just to me. And I guess that's part of the illusion and the uh, main magic of radio. It's not really a one-to-one -one experience, but it seems like it is when that person is talking directly at you. And I used to feel that way about Dan Ingram on WABC. He was, to me, the best I ever heard do what he did. And so much of what he said went over my head as a kid. And then I thought about it later and I said, oh, that was really funny, what he said and how he turned that around. Uh, here on page 24. I graduated from Mount Woodbury High School in 1970, and I know that's a long time ago, not as long as the Peloponnesian War, but almost. And there were about 230 kids in our graduation class, and roughly half of them went to Orange County Community College. Basically, none of us knew what we wanted to do with our lives, and I was the biggest goof-off of all of them, and I had no clue whatever. But the, the problem with uh, Orange County Community College and the fact that so many classmates went to there out of high school was that uh, I was in the lunchroom in the morning having breakfast and, you know, half a dozen kids would come in, male and female, and we'd all sit together because we knew each other and we'd talk and then the bell would ring and they'd go off to their first class and people that were in a class would come into the lunchroom for a late breakfast and I'd just stay there and talk to them and, you know try to entertain and then the bell would ring and we'd do it all again and the only thing that changed were the people around me i never moved so that didn't bode well for my class and my my ranking in the grade point average because i really didn't go to class in fact the only class i went to i wasn't even enrolled in it was my cousin's psychology class he said mike you should come to this class this this professor is really good you'll find it fascinating so I said, okay. So I went to class with him. And every time they'd call, the, this is how old it was, they'd call the roll of the names. And he'd look at me at the end of going through, you know, 25 names and say, did I call your name? I don't remember calling your name. And I said, no, no. I said, I just transferred in. I said, the paperwork hasn't caught up with me yet. And he'd go, oh, okay. And this went on for an entire semester every time the class met. And I 
you know, I took the final test. I, I contributed during class. I loved it. Of course, I didn't get any credit for it because I wasn't actually enrolled in that class. But the teacher, I think, caught on about midway through the semester. But he humored me. And since I wasn't disruptive, I just I was really into it. And he was a good professor. That's a great story. I'm just going to ask you to go. Can you go back to page 66? Um, I really like that short section. Let me know when you're up there. Yeah, I hear. Okay. I love the short section that's titled The Opposite of Being a Secret Agent. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, this is, uh, again, on page 66. This is a big page. Uh, I'm on the radio four and a half hours a day. Now that's five, by the way. Six days a week. After 40 plus years in the business, I don't have many secrets. The more you talk, the more you reveal yourself. It's only natural, right? And as you can imagine, I do a lot of talking and there is very little about myself that I haven't revealed over the years. The good thing, of course, is that I'm not working for the State Department or the CIA. So I really don't know anything that's worth keeping secret. My favorite TV shows, my favorite sports teams, my favorite musicians, my favorite kinds of pizza. None of that stuff is exactly classified material. Sometimes I would say something on the radio that embarrassed my kids. That happened multiple times because I would talk about them on the show, usually bragging about something impressive they had accomplished or a good deed. One of them had done for a neighbor and uh, they would sometimes complain that I was ruining their life by blubbering about them to the world. So, okay, I happen to believe that they are the best three kids in the world. And I imagine that most parents feel the same way about their kids. The only difference is that I get to share my feelings with everybody who owns the radio or any kind of digital device with internet access. And that happens to be listening to me on the radio. That's great. I, I love that. I still, I still get a kick out of reading your book. I recommend it highly to everyone. If you haven't uh, already you know, picked up a copy of Don't Pay the Ransom, I've Escaped, tell our listeners what brings you the greatest joy as a media professional. I would say connecting people. I love being the conduit, you know, the clue that kind of takes the listener into more of the music background and what went into a song and the people that made it. Or uh, like you say, the celebrity interviews where we reveal something about the celebrity that they didn't know and they get to know them a little off the cuff and not just on their TV or on the movie screen. And uh, that that to me is the, the biggest joy is just connecting with people and uh, you know, every now and again, you get an email or a phone call or a message of some sort that just uh, warms your heart. And, and they say, you know, thank you so much. I've been listening to you for years and I'm always entertained. And it's it's very rewarding in that sense. I love being the person on the radio first thing in the morning telling people what the weather's like, what the traffic's like, what happened on TV last night and wishing them a very good day and getting them off to a good start. Right. School closings. Oh, school closings. I, I read those in my sleep. I, <laughs> the, uh, I usually, if I do a public appearance in front of like a civic group or a dinner, I usually start with, you know, I know there are people here who don't know me, but see if this rings a bell. You know, Mayapak School District, two hour delay, no morning kindergarten. That's one. <laughs> and it always gets a laugh because, you know, they immediately say, oh, yeah, that's the guy on the radio reading the school closings. That's but, you know, you're when you were saying talking about um, how you serve as a kind of glue that holds together a large community. And by the way, the the um, the Mid Hudson Valley is a huge community. There are like three million people there. It's not a it's not a small yeah. it's not a small place. And it's it's large geographically. And the population is big. Yeah. And, you know, actually, the the ratings, the Arbitron ratings for radio 
we are the 39th ranked market in the entire country. So that'll give you some idea of the oh, hundreds that's a of big, cities. And yeah, I've always thought that that was a, a major, well, I've always I've always considered WHUD to be a major part of, uh, of our local community. And it's it always, I always get a thrill listening to it. Um, but this brings me to something else. And I know I said that was the last question, but I lied. Um, I haven't believed anything you've said so far, <laughs> by the way. So, <laughs> um, all right, now I have to, put on my serious hat for something you have uh literally saved lives uh, by speaking openly about your uh cardiovascular issues um can you just go into that for a little because i completely yeah, forgot sure. about that and and but it's really important because i know that people have contacted you and said you saved my life yeah i you know i i i think that's very generous of the people that have said that but you know i do uh and I had mixed feelings about it. What happened was in 2010, I had a heart attack. And uh, as I was recovering from it, luckily, it didn't really damage my heart muscle that much. And I learned a lot about heart disease and so forth, so much so that I had another heart attack in 2015. <laughs> in any case, and that was pretty much the same thing where I was treated early and, and effectively, and it didn't really affect my heart muscle, which is really what you're trying to avoid. Uh, and I was talking to my family after the first one. And I said, you know, because on the air, they were just saying Mike is off. You know, they, they didn't want to say what was really going on at my instruction. So I said to the family, what do you think I should do going forward? Should I even bring this up? And my son, who is a broadcaster in Philadelphia, he immediately said, oh, you have to you have to tell them what happened to you. You have to tell them what happened so that maybe they will get checked out or if they have the same symptoms you had, which was, you know, pain in my chest. And even though they want to, you know, put it off that they go get doctor's appointment and, you know, find out what's going on. I said, you sure? I said, but, and, you know, I felt like it would diminish me somehow in people's eyes. Like I was less of a, a you know, authoritative figure on the radio. And they, he said, no, I said, it's going to be good. So I took his advice, which is, uh, you know, usually a good thing. He's a very smart, savvy kid. And uh, I went on the air and I talked about it and uh, a lot of people reacted to it. And uh, one woman, Grace, who lives in Yorktown, uh, called me up and then we've corresponded since. But she said, I heard you on the radio and I had had chest issues, chest pain for years and off and on. And I finally went and got it checked because of what you said. Turned out she had worse condition than I had. She had to have open heart surgery. And so she to this day, just the other day, she sent me an email. I think about you all the time and thank you for saving my life. And, you know, that's probably a little over the top, but I'll take it and run with it. And uh, I always think of Grace uh, and how generous she was with her feelings toward me. So I included her with a, in a couple of events that we've done. And uh, there was a Heart Association event and I brought her with me and introduced her to the crowd. And you know, it's led to a nice little friendship and she's doing great and I'm doing great. So uh, as long as we're both upright and above the ground, that's a good day. OK, I have a feeling we're going to have to have you back with your with your uh, permission, uh, because you do so much charity work that uh, you are, you know, you qualify as a charitable institution yourself. And that's, <laughs> that's a really important part of, uh, I think, of of being a good, a, you know, a good citizen and a good, uh, you know, a good human being, you know, you really do give back to the community. And, uh, and that's why people love you. I mean, they love you well, for a whole bunch of reasons, but that, that's another <laughs> dimension to it. 
And, you know, I came to that party late. You know, I wasn't doing this when I was first starting out in radio, although we did a, a fundraiser at the Roosevelt Estate, the Mile of Dimes. We would literally tape dimes on the driveway of the place and then add it up at the end of the day. It was crazy promotion, but it was for a good cause. And um, but, you know, the, the nicest thing about that is that I've imparted this on my kids. I used to bring them to a lot of events and uh, now they all do charity work on their own. And it's very, very rewarding. And it's an important part of life. Uh, you know, I don't understand people that don't do any charity work. That doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I'm not trying to be judgmental, but I, I mean, I, I don't understand that. Some people do it with a checkbook and that's great. But, uh, and it's funny when you do a lot of charity work, you know what, you run into the same people at all the events, whether it's charity X, Y, or Z. It's funny how the same people the charitable people are out there working hard. So it's been very rewarding, I have to say. So thank you for that. And uh, yeah, we'll do another show. We'll do another 20 shows. What are you kidding me? <laughs> okay, Mike, this has been terrific. That was my conversation with Mike Bennett. I have a strong feeling that we'll be hearing more from Mike in future episodes. Until then, be well, be kind, and enjoy the moment. That wraps up another episode of Paid by the Word a podcast featuring conversations with writers, editors, and media professionals. We are grateful for your attention, and we wish you all the very best. Stay safe and be well. Bye-bye.